You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about a debate that happened back in the 40s that we think has a lot of relevance for today. It's a debate about the role of the black liberation movement in America to the workers' movement and the socialist movement. We'll be talking about the majority position of the Workers' Party, which argued that that black liberation movement should be subsumed within the class struggle and, and union movement, and the minority position of Ryadunyevskaya and C.L.R. James, which argued that there was a great revolutionary potential and masses of black people fighting for liberation on their own terms. We also touch on the very interesting debate over national self-determination. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we will commence the main segment of the podcast discussing this debate from the 40s. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So we're recording this current event section on Wednesday, January 20th, and it is about seven hours and five minutes since Joe Biden assumed the presidency of the U.S. Um, but we're planning to spend this current event segment mostly talking about the fallout from the January 6th Capitol riot that I think last time we recorded a current event section, we were just like less than a day away from that event and hadn't had a lot of time to process it. What we want to talk about is the fracturing within the Republican Party and the deplatforming of Trump and withdrawal of all kinds of donations and contracts from corporate America, but especially to look at the issue of the coup being partly an inside job or the attempted coup and the whole issue of the coddling by the cops and, and stuff of white supremacists. So, yeah, let's, let's start with the fallout for the Republican Party. Well, it's interesting, right? Because Mitch McConnell, in his typically self-serving way, waited until the day before Biden took over to say, oh, yeah, Trump's responsible for the riot, and I never want to talk to him again. But he's trying to find some way to have his cake and eat it, too. He doesn't want to piss off this Trumpite base, but he also doesn't want to get like lynched by a Trump mob or seen to be supporting insurrection. So clearly he knows they have a problem, but he doesn't really know what to do about it. Right. Even though, you know, it's really threatening the lives of a lot of them. And I mean, from what we hear, some of them are not going to vote in the Senate to convict Trump of inciting insurrection because they're afraid for their lives. They're afraid that the the, the far right is going to come and off them or their kids or their wife or whatever it might be. So, I mean, they're, 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 they're in a tough spot. The thing is, the mainstream Republican Party has been dead for over four years. And they found a temporary hiding place by basically rubber stamping Trump and his, his base. Will they continue to do that? For how many of them will that be a bridge too far? And if it's not, what fraction of their support will go? Because you got uh, some people who say, I can't, I can't stomach this, some voters. You know, I'm not going to vote for the Republicans ever again if they go down this road. So holding on to a very fervent, rabid, you know, fascistic base, that they can do. Going mainstream it looks like the, the, the party is going to split because the, the, they're going to lose a lot of their support if they piss off the base. Where's the base going to go? It's going to go back to not voting, right? If they go full fascist, it looks like they're going to become a permanent minority party. So I, I actually don't know what. I think it's going to be a really epic battle in the, in the Republican Party. But I, I really don't see... Whatever happens with the conviction of Trump in the, in the Senate, I don't see the party holding on for the long uh, haul, especially if McConnell can get himself and 16 other Republicans to vote to bar a Trump from uh, ever holding office again and get that through the Supreme Court. Because at that, at that point, the, the base is essentially defanged. They don't have their leader. 
Another open question is to what extent Trump will remain the figurehead of the Trump base. Uh, this week we saw the Proud Boys start to condemn Trump because he sort of let them down after the Capitol riot when he you know, walked back his encouragement of the riot and, and then didn't pardon anybody. He didn't follow up to the Capitol right with some bigger plan for a, a coup attempt. The QAnon people were attempt, were expecting some big revelation today and during on Inauguration Day, and that didn't happen. So he seems to have let his base down. It's not the first time he's let his base down. But without a platform on Twitter to you know serve as their spokesperson, without the presidency to advocate for their positions, will he still have something to offer his base? such that they will continue to you know, rally around Trump. Right. That's certainly true in, in the short term. And it's very clear that the reason he's doing this, pretending to be a good boy for a few hours, is so that he can beat the conviction in the Senate and not to be barred from running for office. If he beats that and he manages to get around his technological problems— the deplatforming on Twitter, etc. He can reconnect with the base, and they'll be all in with him again. This kind of thing has happened before, where you know he gave hostage speeches, as it's called. You know, he he read and said the correct lines, and he he's he's done things that the base did not approve of. And what would happen is either the just raw reaction of the base, or the reaction mediated by the Tucker Carlsons and Ann Coulters and Sean Hannity's. That would move Trump back, and he would do something really horrible, and he'd win them back. So with them, it's always been purely transactional, just like it is with him. They love him because he does what they want, and he would want to do it again. The only question is whether the forces that are gunning for him uh, are going to allow that or not. A lot comes down to can this deplatforming work, or can something like Parler or whatever, or some Trump thing take its place? Will he be able to find a way to run again or start an extra uh, semi-legal or whatever uh, paramilitary fascist movement? We, we don't know. But, you know, they're pissed off because it's purely transactional. They love him when he does stuff that they want. It's not like a cult where they really believe in this person. They believe in what he's doing for them. Yeah, we'll just see if there's anything he has left to offer them now that he has no platform and he's not the president. He's just a private citizen with a lot of debt and legal problems. Yeah, I think it's a big deal. I, I, you know, there are two strains of thought here. One is that it's a big deal. And this is kind of like the beginning of the end for Trump, especially being thrown off Twitter. And the, the other view is there's ways around this. But the issue is whether these ways around it do more than allow him to communicate with a really rabid, core, proto-fascist, now I won't even say proto-fascist, base, or whether he can still, as he's done, energize that base to intimidate and threaten mainstream Republicans. If they don't get enough play in the general discourse, you know, if it's just some crazies on 8chan, 4chan, 16chan, whatever it is, if it's just some crazies talking to each other, mainstream Republicans are going to be able to breathe a sigh of relief and go back to tax cuts and invading foreign countries and outlawing abortion and whatever their usual go-to things are about. Yeah, I agree. We don't know for sure, but it's a promising start, this kneecapping of Trump by deplatforming him. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll lead to good things. Yeah, and I tell you, it, it, what was what's been amazing to me is after atrocity after atrocity after atrocity, four hundred thousand dead from COVID and uh, Charlottesville and just like everything. Now you get like you know the storming of the the, the capital of a fascist coup, and it's all very sudden. You get the deplatforming. You get the Republicans breaking from. I mean, obviously the election lost in didn't help uh, e either. But especially among these social media companies, it's like, oh, well, what can we do in free speech and this and that? It's like they knew what to do all along. And it's, oh, we can't do it. Of course you could do it. They, and, they, they, and they just, you know, they did it. And it's like, how many lives and how much suffering could have been uh, avoided if this had happened, let's say, five years ago?
it's not rocket science. You don't you don't need goddamn algorithms and sophisticated stuff to know what to do here. Is this deplatforming though going to be permanent? You know, like which way is Zuckerberg going to play this? And will it depend on how much uh, Congress and Biden leave him alone to continue to whip up fake fervor? Yeah, we'll see if there is finally a mandate now, uh, a political will for Congress and the presidents to do something about social media. I mean, in general, it seems like all this stuff is now out in the open. There's no more like hiding behind free speech or talking about like conservatives' rights being taken away from them or something by, you know, the the nanny state. I mean, Biden in his speech today was talking about the need to do away with white nationalism and domestic terrorism. Uh, like everything is stark and clear and it's not about dog whistles anymore. Uh, we know what the real politics are of these people and we know where the line in the sand is and we know who's aiding and abetting them and who's fighting them. And I don't think there's a lot of room for social media companies, for Republican senators, for any of these people to really defend their actions anymore. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to which way the Republican Party goes, because, you know, it's not the first time that, like, people have thought about this. And back when I think it was Obama was president, there was a whole report on basically white supremacist terror and the Republican Party was like up in arms and said, you're trying to like silence conservatives and this and that. And they eventually like shelved the report. And this has been so it's been going on a long time. And I mean, but what this goes to is the issue of ties between the mainstream Republicans and the far right. On the one hand, it ties them between the far right and the, the, the armed militias and vigilantes and all of that. On the other, the question is, will there be enough mainstream Republicans to break with this? And in whatever form, either leaving the Republican Party or joining the Democrats or or, or whatever it might be, Trump is now threatening to establish a third party. So he might be seeing the handwriting on the wall in terms of which way the the regular Republican Party goes. But that regular Republican Party, I mean, what what can it do? Win 20 percent support while Trump wins, you know, 35 and, and the Democrats win 45 or something like that? I think that finally among the Democrats, you've got the political will and you've got the political opportunity. I mean, here is an opportunity unlike any other opportunity they've ever had. I mean, this was like the smoking gun. This is a real issue. Why? Because we see it on the TV and, you know, there are videos and videos and videos being shown and people are getting killed and, you know, cops are being beaten with Trump flag flagpoles. It's clear that it wasn't just like, you know, some spontaneous riot. It's planned insurrection. I mean, so they, they've got the goods on them. They're going to definitely try to do something, whereas before it was like really hard to say that they would. Now I think that they're definitely going to try. The question is how much pushback they're going to get from the Republican Party. Well, there's a lot more to talk about, obviously, but we're up against a time limit, so we're going to move on to our main segment now. So today we're going to talk about a piece by Ryodunivskaya from 1946 entitled Abstract of Comrade Coolidge's Document on the Negro Question. And in general, this piece takes place within a context in which the Workers' Party and other radical organizations are trying to understand the relationship between the socialist movement and, and the labor movement that the socialist movement is traditionally sort of basing itself around and the struggle for freedom, equality, rights of black Americans and trying to figure out what that, how those two things relate to each other. We thought this piece was interesting and getting to some early thoughts of Dunyaskaya about these issues of like self-determination, independent mass activity, the relationship of like capitalism and class struggle to other sorts of liberation movements. So that's what we're going to try to tackle today. Um, Andrew, let's see if we can figure out just the context of what these discussions were that were happening at the time. The Socialist Workers' Party is broken with the Stalinists, and then the Workers' Party has broken with the 
Socialist Workers Party. Right. And, and this was already five, six years in to the independent existence of the Workers Party. And then Dooney of Sky and C.L.R. James uh, had a tendency within the Workers Party called the Johnson Forest Tendency. And they're criticizing the Workers Party's position on this question, which in the parlance of the time was called the Negro question. And when you read these documents, you're reminded of the fact that this was a time in American history where the lives of black Americans were changing. There was this movement northward and into industrial centers. Some black workers were entering into the trade unions. And so this notion of the role of struggle of black workers relative to the trade union movement was becoming relevant. Um, It was also a time when um, African-Americans were fighting fascists in Europe but while enduring segregation at home in the U.S. So it was a lot of these issues were uh, were like kind of front and center. Right. All of that was happening. I do want to say, however, that uh, in the mid-1940s when this was occurring, that urbanization and northern movement of black people in the country, it was still ongoing. It was not complete. It was not like what we have now. You still had... I, I don't know what percentage, but but a very, very large percentage of blacks were in the South. They were in sharecropping. The mechanical cotton picker did not get introduced until the, the 1950s. And it was that that finally, you know, really put paid to the mass of sharecropping uh, families in, in the Deep South, both black and, and, and white. So it's ongoing, and they think it's, it's it's a very big deal, and it was a very big deal, but it, it hadn't progressed to the point where, you know, I mean, now when you think about black people, you think about people living in cities, you know, and nowadays, you know, the, the first ring around the suburbs around the cities, but that was, that was not the, the situation yet uh, in the U.S., Let's try to present the context of more specifically what, what's being debated here. The Workers' Party had a majority position on the so-called Negro question, and this position was basically one that wanted to subsume the struggle, uh, you know, black liberation struggles within the labor movement and argue that the, the real path to liberation was going to be through uh, class struggle and as part of the this organized movement of the working class. But there were this minority position within the Workers' Party, articulated by C.L.R. James and, and Dunia Skaya, that thought that there was a role for independent uh, you know, mass movement on, on the basis of fighting for uh, you know, democratic rights that had a role outside of just its subsumption within the, the workers' movement. Right, and specifically the unions, right? Um, right. So when when they talked about an independent mass movement, an independent, you know, Negro mass movement, uh, I think the principal signification of independent was, you know, you could say in general independent of the class struggle, but really it was independent of the unions, and that I think was the key thing that. Uh, Sky was debating with uh, Coolidge was, are we going to address the black struggle as it is, as an independent struggle, or say, you guys join the unions and fight for, for fight to overcome your second class status within the, the workplace and within the unions? So in this debate, which spans several years, Duniuskaya and C.L.R. James are debating with uh, Comrade Coolidge, which is the pen name of um, Ernest Rice McKinney, who was an African-American trade union organizer and socialist uh, who was part of the party, and he sort of represents the majority position in this debate. Donetsky actually says that the way Coolidge characterizes the majority position is uh, that it is his position. And she says, well, if you look at the actual language, it, it doesn't say that. So the probably the wording of the official position was, you know, more nuanced or more vague, but ir- irrespective, uh, obviously there were these two uh, viewpoints. And a lot of the issue revolved around Coolidge basically tried to make everybody who di- didn't agree with him in, in, into some kind of black nationalist. <laughs> you know, he, he tried, he, he really tried to make it like, you know, there, there are just two sides here instead of a whole 
way, variety of ways of, of relating to to the, the black movement. One thing one, it, is, it is important to say is he had a long history already. He was um, he was born in in 1886. So in 1946, he was already uh, 60 years old. Uh, he was not a young man at the time, and he himself was black. And so he had a long history in the Communist Party, in the Socialist Workers Party, and the, and the Workers Party, uh, as well as in, in numerous black uh, organizations. He worked right for a time with um, Du Bois. Yeah. And he also, apparently he and... And CLR James did not get along. They right personally. And he worked with a Philip Randolph, uh, who was a socialist, black uh, trade unionist. If you poke around on the internet, you can find um, various parts of this debate in different places, as Coolidge and CLR James and Dunyaskaya are responding to each other in different publications and different forums. <clears throat> so basically, we've, we, the, the document that we're talking about first consists of Dunyevskaya reviewing and summarizing points that Coolidge is making. So in preparation for an in-person debate that they were going to have, she took a document of his, summarized his points, he numbered them one through 124. She gave a much more concise summary, and uh, after that, she begins to discuss it. The document of his is called A Bulletin on the Negro Question by David Coolidge. And yeah, this document that we're discussing, abstract of Comrade Coolidge's document on the Negro Question, is this. these were her notes for like her debate then, right? This wasn't something that was published? Correct. It may have been published in another form. I'm not aware of that. She was not aware of it. I mean, a lot of materials got lost uh, over the years. But when when she put together her, her archives, nothing, you know, right then and there uh, flowed from this that's that's in the archives. Let's go through the main points that Dunyovskaya elicits from Coolidge's document to so, so give you some context for the what she's responding to, what she's critiquing. Um, for one, you know, Coolidge has this, or, or McKinney, should, should we, let's just call him Coolidge since that's what he referred to, he's referred to in the document. So Coolidge has this criticism of what he refers to as race consciousness. And I guess we should probably, you know, lay out what exactly this criticism is. He's, what race consciousness is in relation to self-determination, black nationalism, Black chauvinism, these are all terms we hear, but it's not clear maybe right away if they're all stand-ins for each other or if one leads to another. Right. Okay, so he defines race consciousness in a particular way. He says that he was in a, a meeting at, of the Buffalo Workingmen's Welfare Committee, and there's a member who objected to, a black guy, objected to the statement that Negroes should demand social, political, and economic equality. And this person's objection was that he didn't want social equality. He was willing and he preferred to confine his social life, quote, to my own people. Uh, and Coolidge says that is what race consciousness means, and that's how it's used uh, by Negroes. So, so basically, it's a type of like s separatism, like a, a nationalism. Yeah, it's a voluntary social segregation. I mean, voluntary, you know, given the circumstances, and giving up on on any fight uh, for in integration or you know social integration and just acceptance of Jim Crow and so forth. And I'm going to concentrate on we're going to concentrate on uh, ourselves. I guess it's clear from that why, if that is what race, race consciousness is, and there's no other definition for it, or you know, it's confined to that, one can see why that wouldn't be revolutionary from the standpoint of Coolidge or the Workers' Party, because it's not particularly anti-capitalist and doesn't allow for a integrated, unified working class where white and black workers are fighting capitalists together. Right. Right. Uh, it, it's basically uh, just a position of resignation that, you know, 
white white America is just too far gone and too, you know, Jim Crow is too entrenched and so forth. And what we have to do is work on uh, ourselves, lifting ourselves up. That basic sentiment is still there uh, and it has kind of always been there. Booker T. Washington had a, a version of that kind of way of thinking and, you know, black capitalism that, that was real popular in the late 60s, that kind of stuff, it's an expression of the same kind of thing. And evidently, you know, like uh, Clarence Thomas has a lot of affinity with that way of thinking. It, he, he actually has the, some kind of nationalist bent. But this sort of separatist or what he calls race consciousness is not the only thing that Coolidge is critiquing. I, I think what, what what's at issue is he's laying out and characterizing all the, the various positions that are out there that he disagrees with in order to say, here's the right way to go. So he's against this race consciousness. Uh, he's against saying that there is no special race question in the U.S. apart from the class question. Uh, he's against uh, all forms of separatism. He's against the self-determination. Basically, he's against the, the idea of, of self-determination for blacks in the U.S. Uh, on the grounds that they, they're not a nation. So the idea of national self-determination is, is for him crazy because blacks are not a nation. So he makes a big deal of saying um, that they're not really a group in the full sense. They don't think alike or act alike. They don't march together or strike together, you know. So they only form a group. They're an oppressed group in the, in the sense of all of them are oppressed and they're all black. They're oppressed as a black group. But in, in no positive sense, no active sense, do, do they constitute a group. That That's his view. Another thing that Coolidge talks about and that Dunia Sky wants to address is this way that he sort of creates this typology for describing the specific experience of African-Americans in the U.S. of suffering from what he calls a dual disability. And what he means by this is that there is this, what he calls a primary disability, which is uh, something they share with uh, white workers as well. And that's just the character of being proletarian or lumpen proletarian and the disadvantage that puts one at. Um, and then the secondary disability by which he means um, as victims of racial oppression, and he argues that the secondary disability, the racial oppression, can't be solved until the primary disability is addressed. And he, again, argues that this primary disability is one that they share with all workers. I would like to know on, on what basis he says this one's primary and that one's secondary. I mean, it, it seems rather, first of all, static and also decontextualized primary in every respect with respect to every set of events that emerges or not and secondly it's i i, I just think that to, to divide these things is we put this in this category we put the other thing in another category is, is kind of crazy because there's not some undifferentiated working class i mean that's the, the the primary problem is to look at the working class as some undifferentiated mass and say you know okay here, all the workers are alike in the sense of being workers. Well, no, they're not. There, there are race divisions among workers. There's differentiation in terms of who works where, what, what their pay is, you know, working conditions, uh, unemployment rates, and that continues to the present. So um, it's, 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 we, it's weird, but it's kind of like what you expect from Trotskyism. <laughs> But also maybe it comes from like the historical experience of the time where you have like the working class movement, which is a white movement that and then you have this phenomena of black workers starting to enter into the organized workers movement. And so it seems like there is a, you know, racially homogenous working class. And then there's this new like addition into it, rather than now when we look at the say, American working class, and it's just a 
multiracial and internally differentiated mass. Yeah, I mean, to some to some extent, that 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 that's that's correct. How 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 different it was that I'm not sure about. But yes, the the, the tendency has been in the direction that you described, without a doubt. Well, why don't we also touch on Coolidge's conclusions that he draws from his analysis? He he's opposing three different types of politics. One, which he calls reformism, which is a type of politics in which the struggle for democratic rights are the only struggle. This is basically liberalism. He's opposing social reformism, which Dunyaskaya explains is kind of what we call social democracy, um, which argues that you know, only a future revolution will solve the race problems. And he, but he's also opposing what he calls a Negro particularism, but which actually means two different things. And Dunyaskaya will later argue that there's no relationship between these two things. But by Negro particularism, he means the, the separatist tendencies we've mentioned before, but also the idea that, this, that black freedom struggles are a force for social change or are the primary force for social change. I mean, to be precise, what he's actually opposing is the doctrine that they are or are liable to become the chief driving force of social change in the U.S. I don't think he's denying that, that they could be a, a driving force, but his, his, his ways of speaking are rather coded, I, I, I find so. But that's, that's, that's the thing that he wants to say that he's opposed to. So we get, we get two different senses of particularism. One, that they're, you know, a particularly vanguard element in the movements for social change. Uh, and an entirely different thing is separatist tendencies. In fact, those things are kind of opposite. One of the things that Coolidge and Dunyaskaya and C.L.R. James are trying to discern the meaning of is of the Marcus Garvey movement. They all, you know, agree that he was a charlatan in the end, um, but... They kind of disagree on how to read or understand this mass movement that that uh, arose around Garvey. Right. I mean, um, Coolidge's view was okay. The the Garvey movement was briefly very attractive, but you know that was long since uh, gone. It was a thing of the distant past, and Garveyism had been rejected then decisively by uh, black uh, Americans. And then the the question is why? Okay, Coolidge was saying Garvey has been rejected by black Americans decisively, but not because he wanted to take us all back to Africa as such. It's because he had a separatist program and outlook. And that is what has been rejected by black Americans. And Dunyevskaya disagrees with that. She says, no, it's, it's it had to do with the being going back to Africa, that that's what people rejected. Okay, so she wasn't saying that they had separatist tendencies, as, as I read it. She wasn't saying that they had separatist tendencies, but she was not saying that the rejection of Garvey was some kind of proof that that question had been closed in terms of the thinking of black Americans. You know, what she later said in American Civilization on Trial, I'm not sure it comes out here, is you know, to answer that question of what what was it that attracted the masses of black people to, to Garveyism is, well, first of all, here was a movement that was like finally speaking to them, whereas like the, the intellectuals pretty much, the black intellectuals pretty much had not more or less considered them some sort of inert mass. And they would talk about the talented 10th and, you know, uh, all of that. Garvey was speaking to them and he was saying, let's change things here and now. And that kind of like freedom now, which King later made in, in, into the slogan, that was new. And that was what was uh, attracting people. Well, it's, it's interesting to see Dunyevskaya pushing back on Coolidge's like total rejection of this sort of sentiment uh, amongst masses of people, but without like, you know, uh, in, endorsing politically like um, national separatist tendencies at the same time. But she, she, you can tell she thinks there's something more to it than just like a totally reactionary sentiment. You know, that's the mid-40s. By 20 years later, or less, 1963, um, you know, she's concluded that blacks want uh, integration in the main, because that, that's what's stated in the uh, American Civilization Trial. And she says, you know, what we have to understand is 
national consciousness or, or national aspirations uh, of black people in a situation in which they don't want separatism. You know, it's not expressing itself as a demand for, you know, a separate state or country or, you know, autonomy within. It's expressing itself uh, in demands for integration, but it's a national consciousness because th there's a national kind of problem here. I mean, really, the whole thing about separatism is not central either, except that Coolidge is kind of raising, you know, it's like he, he's trying to move everything that's not his position. Uh, he's trying to push it all into some extreme thing. Yeah, I mean, basically, Coolidge wants to dismiss any type of politics that it hasn't been subsumed under the labor movement or is like reducible ultimately to class conflict. So in some ways that he like wants to raise the specter of, um, like black separatism as some sort of kind of reactionary counterexample. I'm not clear whether he wants to put all, you know, independent mass activity that isn't subsumed by the labor movement under the category of separatism, but this big discussion of separatism almost seems like a scare tactic or like a big distraction and allows him to sort of dismiss all the types of politics that are outside of the labor movement as types of chauvinism and, and reactionary nationalism. Yeah, I, I think that's really the core of it. It's okay. They, they both they both say, you know, look, we, we need socialism to solve all of these problems, and the only social class that's truly revolutionary on a large scale that's the the the, the working class. But then Coolidge says, well, the struggle for democratic rights that remains a democratic struggle. It's not yet class struggle, and so that's secondary. And the primary struggle is the the class struggle. So black people should join the unions, participate in the labor movement, and then within it, they should fight for their democratic rights, because uh, you know they have this, this special disability, as he put it. He just rejects this idea of an independent black movement, independent of the class organizations and the labor unions and so forth. And he's doing so in the name of rejecting separatism and, and particularism. And Donetsk is saying, well, well, hold on, you know, separatism is one thing, but to see in the blacks in this country that they are a particularly important driving force for the whole American Revolution, that's a whole different matter. That's not separatism, okay? And so the issue is not, are you separate or do you integrate just with the, the general class struggle? But within that general class struggle, is there uh, also uh, alongside it, this mass movement of blacks that is not a labor struggle, that's an independent struggle that we have to relate to and recognize? And, you know, she and James are saying yes. And that that is, I think, what, what the issue is, is the subsumption of the black struggle uh, within and under the, the, the class struggle and, and, and the leadership of the unions. That That's what I take the, the debate to have been at that point. Yeah. It's a little bit difficult to drill down and figure out what's going on because there are sort of these canards and secondary issues. And because things are like referring to other contemporary writings and so it's difficult to jump into and just get your lay of the land a little bit right and part of the reason is they're both pulling their punches for a variety of reasons and they're they're stating their things especially i found coolidge was stating his stuff in very cagey ways doing this guy's like trying to probe him to get what he really what he really thinks out on the table. He's doing the same thing with her. He does not like her formulations in the least. Uh, and she's she's being very cagey, and it might be because she actually did not agree with the party position but was not prepared to fight on, on that ground at the, that point. That's, that's my guess, but he was trying to probe that there was an actual disagreement on her part with the, the party position. He, he, he spent a good deal of time trying to do that, it seems to me. She's Characterizing his position as, as basically a type of, it's like an economism where the racial justice is subsumed within this class struggle. But then at the same time, you can lift out quotes from Coolidge that seem to recognize the need for a struggle for equality outside of the workplace. And so it becomes difficult to 
um, nail him down on the position because he seems to like always have cover. You say, oh, you're saying there isn't a space for this. And he can say, oh, look, I read this paragraph where I said there is a space for this. I, I, mean, I actually don't think that there's a contradiction in his position. It, to me, it's a very clear position, except what is unclear is the the ultimate rationale for it is unclear to me. I mean, basically, he's saying, look, there there is this race question in America that is not reducible to the general class question. There is a, a, a dual oppression uh, that blacks experience. You know, first of all, most of them are workers, so they experience that general class oppression and exploitation. But then because of the lack of democratic rights and uh, Jim Crow and, and all kinds of things, they experience an additional oppression, just racist attitudes and, and so forth. So, so they're doubly oppressed. And he says that there needs to be struggle against both things, you know, the, the, the class oppression and exploitation, but also against this special exploitation faced by, by black people. Okay, so th there's no disagreement with them, be between them with regard to that. What Coolidge says, though, is since the only solution is going to come from the labor movement, from the working class movement, uh, and so forth, Blacks have to be organized as proletarians. They have to be organized on a working class basis. And within the labor movement, that's where they should articulate and press their concerns about racial justice, both in society and with regard to the workplace and with regard to the union. So it's a position, this is how I understand it at least. I think, I think this is right. It's a position of being incorporated within and being under the leadership of the overall union movement that's what so he what he's doing is rejecting the position of an independent mass black movement that's not organized specifically on workplace kind of lines now why why he's saying this i mean i i mean i know why he's saying it but what the the reasoning is if, is there any justification for that that i i haven't gotten it's a it's a weird position, and it just seems to be like uh, I, I want the, the 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 union bureaucracy to be like uh, the, the the people in charge of everything here, and everybody should subordinate themselves to that. That's what that's what it looks like to me. If, if there's a better justification, I'd like to hear it, but I I haven't seen that. Well, th that leads us to this disagreement between the two of them about whether Black Americans can be the driving force for social change where they can be like the vanguard of the revolution in american society yeah this is this is what he is 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 rejecting in, in connection with the the national question in another document she challenges him she says that lenin spoke of uh oppressed nations that powerless against imperialism on their own they were one of the bacilli which helped the real power against imperialism to come to the scene, the socialist proletariat. Okay, so he was thinking like, you know, the Irish struggle, a small country, right? A small nationality, the Irish people, but that could help bring down, you know, capitalism, imperialism by being a bacillus, you know, like a, a virus. It's like a starter bacteria. A starter, yeah. So at, at the end of this document from where he actually answers her, this is around the same time, and he, he, he says, no, he calls it a, quote, trick, close quote, question. He does not think that the Negro struggles in America are just such bacilli as Lenin refers to. He basically says they're not a nation, so Lenin's argument doesn't work here. Yeah. Are they a small nation? Is this a struggle against imperialism in the sense of a struggle for national independence? Is this politically and organizationally comparable to the struggle of the Slovaks against the Czechs, the Serbs against Austria, the Croatians against the Serbs, or the impending struggle of, say, the Hungarians against Russia? So he's, again, trying to make everything into a question, really, of, 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 of separatism. Right. The logic that she lays out is that um, basically the black Americans are a likely driving force because they're a specially oppressed group with the least to lose and their experience has made them uh you know not soft i think is the term she uses and she points to their their like anti-war attitude 
and other positions that are far to the left of the mass of white workers in the, in the country at the time. And, you know, she says, yes, white workers are necessary for the revolution because they're the majority. And obviously, like the racial divisions in the working class keep the working class from being unified against capital. So overcoming those racial divisions is crucial. But she sees the black Americans and as having this special role because of their dual oppression that has the, the power to sort of make the struggle for socialism possible. Yeah. Uh, I thought that formulation, which I hadn't seen by her elsewhere, I thought that was particularly uh, helpful, especially the oppressed group with the least to lose. Mm-hmm. Hadn't, hadn't seen her use that expression elsewhere, lead the least to lose. You know, I keep, I keep looking for, for that, you know, some kind of explanation, justification of why, not just the facts of the matter, but, but why it is that blacks are being singled out, uh, the black masses as the vanguard of the American Revolution. What, what's, we, we can point to all kinds of things that they've done, you know, most recently, of course, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. But, but what's the necessity behind this? What's 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 the explanation of for, for for why this is is happening? You know, it's not just the, the they're the most oppressed. Uh, it's got they got the least to lose. You know, the, 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 there's more, and I'd like to see even more. But uh, yeah, doesn't J- CLR James draw says that a little bit, uh, talking about them sort of directly having to confront the capitalist state and their struggles for equality. In his uh, resolution of the minority, yeah, yeah, right. Because uh, yeah, Coolidge is, is saying that this is the old kind of uh, social democratic uh, line. Is well, they're they're just fighting for this is the social democrats say you know they're just fighting for democratic rights within capitalism, and because they're fighting for rights within capitalism, they're not questioning the capitalist system, and so their demands are bourgeois. You know, this is not a struggle against capitalism. And basically, people like Moshe Pistone would, you know, repeat the same line. And our friends in Platypus, you know, repeat the, the same exact line. And what what Johnson and Forrest or, you know, James and Dunia Sky are saying is they're, they're fighting within these narrow confines, black people are, because it's the capitalist state that is confining them <laughs> in this way and they're coming into conflict with the capitalist state when, when, when they fight she also points out that the reforms that the union movement are fighting for are also within the confines of the capital state and bourgeois society so she sort of throws it right back at the coolidge and the socialists and say look the tactics that you're asking all these black workers to fight for are also reformist tactics to for reforms within the system. So what's the difference? How can you dismiss dismiss it when it happens in this sphere, but support it when it happens in this other sphere? And when the labor movement, the official labor movement, the bureaucrats and everybody are supporting a lot of things, it's because they're being prodded by the black masses. Yeah. And I think you're right that this argument that Dunyanskaya makes often that um, the black masses are at the vanguard of the revolution, that we could see that the argument for that fleshed out a little more. Right. I, I, I would just like to see her say more about why this is. I mean, we get, we get the, the historical account that they are because they are. Look at this, look at that, look at the other. Okay, but why? What's the necessity underlying that? She doesn't say too much you know i look through like all of acot and like what's the theory here as to why this is the case all because it's it's an it's an issue of induction and induction only takes you so far in other words the you know the chicken is being fed by the farmer day in day out and the chickens you know loves the farmer but you know and then the next day the farmer rings the chicken's neck chickens aren't very smart uh, so the fact that it's always been this way is, is not any kind of guarantee that it's always going to be this way. It's much better to understand, if in fact it's the case, why things have to be or are likely to be a certain way. Yeah, I totally agree. That no, nobody um, has like what I would consider you know, a theory that's more than uh, a few sentences uh, at its root. 
but you know what? That's the way it is with theories in general. <laughs> people, people write, there's a theory, but the actual theory can be boiled down into a few statements and the rest is just like elaborations and clarifications and nuances and responses and illustrations. And that, that's, that's the way it is. Theory is not like, you know, some massive set of interconnected structures usually. So, you know, maybe it is all very simple. So you're saying it could all boil down to this argument of least to lose? Least to lose, specially oppressed. And the other thing is what she stressed most later on was they develop a profound humanist. They have the most profound humanist aspirations because of being dehumanized uh, most consistently. So their their sense of how total the, the, the difference in society they want is is much stronger uh, in general. That she she does say that. So there are those elements. But I want more. I want it all put together and stuff. You know. So but that's me. That's the kind of person I am. Hey, just a moment, we're going to conclude this discussion. But first, a few words from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. You know, there's an interesting bit in Duniskaya's document here where she is talking about this social democratic approach to the questions of racial equality, which seems to want to put those questions off until after the revolution. And she says, look, social democracy in general puts a lot of things off till after the revolution, but then it only focuses on reforms and it's not really interested in the revolution anyway in the first place. It's a very, it's a very interesting dispute. I mean, and this is what's particularly relevant when we look at our little friends like uh, Dustin, Guastella and stuff. Her suggestion that these people don't really mean it when they say that the, the social revolution is just going to automatically solve these questions. Yeah, she's saying they basically just want to put the question off. Yeah, 
and they, they just want to struggle for for reforms within the existing system right now. And that's that's what the social democrats are all about. Uh, I mean, and she's got very good reasons for saying that. That is the history of, of social democracy and, and reformism. I mean, this was basically what uh, Bernstein came out with and made into a doctrine. The daily struggle for uh, reforms, that's everything, and the ultimate goal was nothing. And he says the movement is everything. But what he meant by the movement was the, the struggle for immediate reforms within within capitalism. And, and so, and that's the thing is, therefore, those de- democratic demands you know, within the existing capitalism, and yet they disparage and look down upon the struggle for racial justice, you know, on the grounds of it's just, you know, immediate demands and you can never really solve the problem. Basically, it's like, you should be subservient to what I want to do. Um, but, but, but Coolidge kind of took at face value that the Social Democrats really do think that the, the issue of, 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 of racism and double oppression will be solved by the transformation from uh, capitalism to, to socialism. He, he took that at face value. And Duniska says, well, there might be somebody here or there that actually believes it. But uh, in the main, that's not what these people are about. No, that, that's good. That sort of ties us into... These, these, some of these contemporary discussions. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, I mean, I, of course, I'm reading everything with the eyes of today, as it's called, but it's like, it, it's really kind of disconcerting and, and, and depressing that we keep getting the same kinds of debates in a different form, but it, it's the same issue that we have now as compared to 75, this is 75 years ago, you know, and so much has changed objectively. So much has changed objectively, but there is still this like dispute going on. There are also some parts of this debate that might not seem so immediately um, relevant to current debates, but I found really historically interesting. There's this whole debate about um, self-determination and what constitutes a nation and this history of how this question was understood by the Russian revolutionaries and then the positions that the Trotskyists and the Comintern and the Workers' Party and those different groups took on this issue, sort of relating to the Russian experience. Right. I mean, this this goes way back, I mean, well before the, the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, the, the, the question of national self-determination for oppressed nations. And there was all these long rather scholastic debates about, okay, what, what's the definition of a nation? Do you need to be defined by living together in a certain area and, and so forth and so on? But generally, yeah, the position from among the, the Bolsheviks and so forth and later also even in the Stalinists was that you do support the right of uh, national self-determination. And if you wanted to abrogate that, you would have to argue that, uh, or you know, not apply it in a particular instance. You'd have to argue the people do not, con- certain group of people do not constitute a nation. So, at a particular moment in U.S. history, uh, the Communist Party. I, I'm not sure if it was fully Stalinist at that point. Probably it was. They had a slogan of uh, self-determination for the black belt, which refers to, in in several southern states, but it's actually not dispersed geographically, very heavily concentrated black populations in in the south. Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, I think. So they said, this is the black belt. And they uh, called for self-determination in the black belt. So in part of this document, Dunyovsky gives a, a brief history of how the American Trotskyist movement started to formulate um, ideas about how to theorize the black liberation movement and nationalism and you know black separatist tendencies in re- um, and how they sort of came to Trotsky with questions and Trotsky was you know trying to formulate a position but um, maybe you know admitted that he didn't have enough information or wasn't fully aware of the the history and the situation in the U.S. But also his experience with this question and the Russian Revolution led him to be sympathetic to these sort of nationalist tendencies. The the, the problem is. The people who were in the Socialist Workers' Party, and a lot of them were were then in the Workers' Party, they had a lot of contact and discussion 
with Trotsky about this issue when he was in Mexico. And a lot of it didn't exist, like by Trotsky writing anything, it had to do, you know, there, there were conversations uh, and so forth. But basically, Coolidge is saying, look, Trotsky just didn't know anything. And, you know, I don't really know what his position was, if he had a position. But, you know, like, the, the hell with it, because he didn't know anything about American blacks. He thought we uh, spoke a different language. And his his ignorance of, of black people in this country was, like, profound and complete. And let's be done with it. And, and Dunevsky is saying, no, it wasn't like that at all, because she served as his secretary. He had, uh, you know, a file cabinet with a lot of position papers and documents written by all kinds of people, you know, the stuff was being sent to him, trying to inform him and lobby him and so forth. So she's saying, no, he, he knew a lot, but he didn't know enough of what he wanted to know. This whole thing about speaking a, a different language, she said that he asked a question, is it the case that some American blacks speak a different language? Right. That's the, that's her version of it. What actually took place, I don't know. This was, you know, you know, a private conversation or, or, or something or people's notes, you know, their the reports of what took place. But she said his, his, his views and his position were not based on that. Very interestingly, he was not trying to give his view of the national question as grounded in some a priori definition of what constitutes a nation. So he wasn't saying, ah, if you speak a distinct language, then you can qualify as a nation. Okay. She was saying that's not what was going on because that's, that, that had been the history of a lot of things. They live in a distinct area. They speak a different language. They do this or that or the other thing. Then, then you can call them a nation. Uh, otherwise not. So he wasn't, he wasn't doing that at all. So Trotsky, you know, gives some advice on this issue, which seems to um, not just poo-poo the notion that self-determination could be worth supporting in uh, the U.S. context. But what? how does that influence the majority position of the Workers' Party? Does Shackman just ignore that and formulate his own policy? I'm not clear about that. What seems to be the, the case is that Shackman held to a position and it was the majority position. Duniskaya argues that it was not Trotsky's position, and it, she originally thought that the Shackman position was all fine and good, but then she, after being acquainted with what Trotsky's view was, she she came to the, the view that uh, that's not the case. And by the way, I mean, nowadays this variant position or something that flows from it is oftentimes credited to C.L.R. James, and he did a lot with it in the early 70s and so forth. But he also, from what I know, originally, you know, had sort of like the mainstream North American Trotskyist position. And what convinced him of the opposite was the discussions with Trotsky and, and, and Trotsky's intervention into the whole question. It's not like, oh, a Caribbean uh, black just appeared on the scenes and illuminated everything for, for people. The actual roots of it have to, to do with the experience of the Russian Revolution and everything and, and, and Leon Trotsky. Let me let me let me let me try to uh, find the exact place where she characterizes what that position is, and she's saying it was sufficient. This the slogan of economic, political, and social equality for the Negroes was sufficient to to grapple with the problem. Okay, that was Shackman's position, and Dunyevskaya said that's. That's cool. Originally, that was her view. Uh, and that was in opposition to the Stalinist position of the time, which was self-determination for the black belt. But then she says Trotsky disagreed. He stated that just because the Stalinists were for self-determination, we need not necessarily be against that slogan, that in no case should we definitely commit ourselves against the slogan for all time, uh, since it was a question for the Negroes themselves to decide, and if they should ask for it, First, we should have to fight for it, or if we were in power, we should have to grant it. Right. And, I mean, there's some really interesting things that, that, that I think he, he said about this, according to her report. One is she's saying, okay, look, he had this, you know, file drawer full of people telling him, here's what, the, you know, black people in the U.S. think. And he says, according to her, what I'm getting are reports of, from black intellectuals. But you can't trust the way black intellectuals think on this question, especially if they're, you know, in favor of, of you know, in, integrationism, because 
they're the intelligentsia. They're much more integrated into the social and political life of the country. They were much more in contact with the white people than the, the great mass of black people are. So if you want to be able to, you know, be attentive to the needs and the demands from the, the, the black masses, I just can't trust the stuff that, that's being sent to me. Because I'm not get I'm not getting what what they think, right? I mean, you got other people representing them, right, and saying it's all black people. But how many intellectuals take what they think and say, "Here's what people think in general." It's a, it's, it's a it's a big problem. So trust. So you know, the previous history of this question had always been, you know, let's sit down and figure out what a nation is, specify the criterion or criteria of what constitutes a nation, and then we can apply then we can apply these criteria to a specific case when we, we, we get this man for self-determination. And what Trotsky says is, hell, you know, there was the revolution. And then all these people from various oppressed nationalities within what had been the Russian Empire are coming to us and, and they, they want self-determination. We didn't even know they existed. Given that, how can we dictate a position on on this matter in advance? Could be that the way they think right now, they don't want self determination. But what if, what if that changes? You know, and I don't even know that they don't want self determination right now. So he, he's he's basically saying, as she puts it, it would be wrong on the basis that the Negro did not now ask for self determination to shut the door on that question for the future. So I mean, this is a, just a very different uh, approach than that kind of scholastic locating features way of going about it, because it's based more on what are the actual demands arising from the group of people, you know, and it's saying, are you a nation? Well, if you think you're a nation, then you're a nation. That's what's underlying that. We're not going to try to define what a nation is for other people. If they themselves, by means of their understanding of things, think they're a nation, that is what constitutes a nation. It's, It's a very different approach. Hey, that's all the time we have left in this episode of Radio Free Humanity. We hope you have enjoyed the episode. If you want to know more about the issues discussed, please check out the links in the podcast episode description. For more episodes and to write to us or leave us a comment, you can go to marxisthumanistinitiative.org. 